Uh, let's uh, go with that sl those slides. Happy New Year. It's great to be here. It's good to have a, a, a time to start the new year. How many of you have New Year's resolutions? Anybody? You know, some of you do, some of you don't. You know what the average time is that people give up on their New Year's uh, uh, resolutions? J January 17th. January 17th is, you know, do you know what is the, the most uh, frequent New Year's resolution for people? Weight. To lose weight. Uh, do you know that uh, in, the, in that market, in the gym market, that more gym memberships are sold in January than in any other month of the year? It's kind of their Christmas that they've got to, they, they make their money on, on that. Um, we want to make some resolutions that will actually work. But if you're going to have some resolutions, you need to have hope that you're going to finish, that you're going to be able to finish what you start. And, uh, and hope is a very important thing. I, I, I decided that I would do this series on uh, singing a new song in the new year. And what we're going to do over the next two months is we're going to take uh, all of the passages, Old and New Testament, that have that phrase, new song. It runs through thematically in the Psalms, but it's also in the book of Isaiah, uh, and it's also in the book of Revelation. So we're going to look at all of those and see what is God trying to teach us through this concept of, and, uh, of new song and new singing and newness in, in life. So the Psalms are a diverse uh, book, book of songs of prayer and praise that express God's relationship to his people and his people's relationship to him. And so many of these first messages are going to be from Psalms, and today from Psalm 33. I'd like you to open up your Bible to Psalm 33, because in a moment I'm going to ask you to stand up and uh, read the first five verses, but, uh, but I'm actually going to go through all 22 verses in the Psalm. But to save time, we'll just read the first five verses. And then uh, a couple things to kind of understand as you, as you think through this, if I can get this on here. There we go. Uh, I'm not sure you can see that, but, you know, these psalms have a context. Uh, this particular psalm comes from the first book in the book of psalms. You know, how many of you know that there's five different books in the book of psalms? And the first 41 chapters are the first book in the book of psalms. This is the only psalm, the one that we're going over today, that does not have a superscription ascribing it to David. It's the only one uh, there. But we do believe that it was probably written by David or around David's time. And, and that's important because that puts it back at the beginning of that timeline there, around 1000 BC is when it was probably uh, written. Time is important. Context is important for in, as we study the scripture because our, ours is a faith that is based in history. It's not just a theory. It's not just a philosophy. Ours is a faith that takes serious the facts of history. We try to figure out where things fit because we don't just have a theory. We just don't have a philosophy. Jesus actually came, lived, died, and rose. And these things actually happen. That's why we are people of the book. Throughout history, people who have followed uh, Yahweh in the Old Testament, people who have followed Christ in the New, have been known as people of the book. And we want to continue that pattern. Singing a new song in the new year or sing a new song for the greatness of the Lord might be the theme of this particular book. And so let's give attention to the public reading of the Word of God, if you would. And please, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 33, first five verses. Shout for joy to the Lord in the Lord. 
O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Give thanks to the Lord. Uh, make melody to him with a harp of ten, uh, ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully of, on strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So what's going on here in this text? What's going on? What, what, what is it going to take to have hope in the new year? What is the hope and the newness that, that uh, our hope should be built on? And what will make new things the norm rather than the exception in 2020? I want to talk about that in, in and through this psalm. And why should we sing a new song in the new year? Why should we even go that way? Well, before we get to the answer to that question, the psalm gives us uh, uh, six commands in the first three verses. And, and, and here they are, just kind of giving you a, a little run-through of what's going on. Shout for joy. That's a command. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. That's a command. Make melody to Him. Sing to Him. Play skillfully. And another one that's hidden in the, in the English translation here is with loud shouts. The, the New American Standard translate that, uh, translates that something like, uh, uh, shout loudly to Him. It's another command. It's another verb. Six different commands. And at the end of, uh, of the book, uh, we're going to get uh, three different things that are going to be talked about there about uh, the idea of hope and where this is going. And, and, and it starts out with this, these commands to praise, and it ends with a prayer of hope. And, and within that is an important principle that I want to, before I get to the message proper, just kind of as a way of introduction, there's a movement in the psalm from praise in the first three verses to confident hope in the last three verses. And so why does it start with praise? Why does it start with hope? And is there a connection there? And I'm going to say, yes, there's a principle. When we need hope, we must learn to praise. When we need hope, we must learn to praise. Now, let me ask you a question. When is the hardest time to praise? When you need hope. <laughs> right? But if you're going to have hope, you've got to learn to praise. You've got to find the things that are praiseworthy and center your heart, center your, your spirit, center your soul in those things that are praiseworthy. And as you do that, what will happen is you will become a hopeful person. And not only hopeful, but you will have a confident hope in that. Hope is a very important thing in life. There's a little town, south, southeast Oklahoma... There used to be a town in a small, a small place near a creek called uh, Mountain Fork. It's just off a, a, a creek that feeds the Little River in that area. And in that area, um, there's a there was a town called uh, Hochatown. Hochatown, it's an Indian uh, name. And it uh, used to be a town with well-kept lawns and a nice general store and picket fences and turn-of-the-century homes. It kind of looked like a western version of uh, Mayberry RFD, you know, Mayberry uh, with Opie and, and uh, just a great, great show. But if you drove through there about now, uh, about 50 years ago, um, you would have seen something else. 
And if you drove down the street, you would see that the houses were mostly abandoned, that uh, the school had some boarded up windows, that the, the, uh, the general store had nearly empty shelves, that there are bags and bags of plastic bags of trash around many of the homes. There's all kinds of potholes all through the town. And when you went, got to the general store, you'd be wondering what, what happened here? Because it looked like an eerie kind of ghost town uh, in, in the West at that point. And the general store owner would say something like this, they're building a dam down at Broken Bow and all of this is going to be underwater in a couple of years. People just don't care anymore. And so they've just given everything up. Hachatown had become a, a town that looked like Mayberry and was a wonderful place to live and raise a family, but um, now it had become a town without a future. When people lose their hope for the future, um, everything falls apart when we have no future to look forward to. And this is true in a family, it's true in a marriage, it's true in a job, it's true in a town, it's true in a church, it's true in people's individual lives. Remove the hope of tomorrow, and today becomes meaningless. So I want to talk to you in, through this message about uh, three great reasons to never lose hope to never lose hope uh, for your personal life, for your family, for your job, for whatever you're going through. Three great reasons not to lose hope as we go through uh, this new year. And, and, there, and part of it, it comes out of this initial, these initial words. Shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the righteous. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. You ought to be, as you read those, those commands, you ought to be asking questions like this. Um, uh, what is the reason for all this exuberance? What, what is the reason for all of this praise, all of this shouting, uh, all of what's going on in this text? Why all these, can, uh, these uh, commands? Why all this exuberance? Why is it fitting for the upright to give praise to the Lord? Well, it, it's fitting because of who our God is. And the first thing that the text tells us is because our God is both powerful and good. It starts out in verse 4 with the word for. For, day, uh, for. for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves, here's the second reason, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And all the way through, verses 4 through 9, you're going to hear more and more about that theme that our God, the God that we follow, the God that loves us, the God that has redeemed us, the God that we worship is a God who, who is both powerful and good. And sometimes our souls forget that. Even sometimes when we're praising God, we can forget that. It can become a ritual. It can become, I know this song, I know these words, I know this tune, I sing those songs, I sing this tune, but we don't think, we don't let it penetrate our heart. We don't meditate on the Word of God. And what the psalmist is trying to do, he's trying to focus our attention, he's, going, he's trying to give us reasons for why we should be this exuberant, why we should do all of those six uh, first commands, why we should shout 
for joy. Not just, I'm happy. You know, I had a, a, an African-American brother, my best friend in college, and uh, our ministry was largely white. And Sam would, would, uh, he would, he would mock us sometimes. And he would say, um, somebody would say, oh, I'm so excited. And, 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 and he, would, he would simply say, um, let your face know. <laughs> That's wonderful. I mean, it was just, you know, just shout, shout for joy. That's, the, the psalmist comes out of the blocks in this psalm, and the first thing he says is, shout for joy. Praise befits the righteous. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Think of new ways to praise him. Write new songs. Play skillfully. Use all of your energy, all of your skill to give praise to God. He gives six commands, you know, shout uh, out loudly. And then he says, and here's why. Four, four, four. He says, for the word of the Lord is upright. He's good. He stands behind his word. His word is good. And all his work is done in faithfulness. Everything God does, he does in faithfulness. So look at, look at your Bible. And if you've if you're, if you got the Pew Bible, it's page 463 or 433. Turn, turn to it. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. Do you? Do we? Well, sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. But God always does. He loves righteousness. The earth is full, full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, now he's going to talk about his power. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all of their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. And he puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. Don't you wish you had that power? I mean, take a problem, any problem in your life. Don't you wish that you had the power to speak and it's done? He does. He does. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. See, as, as you examine those verses closely, you begin to see that, it is, that it's the nature of God, the character of God that dominates the view of the psalmist. The reason he's so exuberant, and the reason he wants everybody else to be as exuberant about, about, uh, as he is about praising God, about shouting joyfully to the God, is because of what he knows about his God, about what he knows about the character of God, his power and his, uh, and his character. The word of the Lord is right, verse 4. And when the Lord speaks, he is faithful. Everything God does is done in faithfulness. Verse 5, he loves justice. He loves righteousness, truthfulness. Everything he purposes, in other words, is good. Everything he does is saturated with uh, his love. Now, that's not true ever of anything that we do. We'd like it to be, but it's not. 
But everything he does, and every thought he has towards you is saturated with his love. It's a sponge that you can't get any more water into because it's saturated with his love for you. That's our God. That's why he's exuberant about this. That's why he's so excited about this. Verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The point is, who do you know that can do that except our God? The gods of Hinduism can't do that. Uh, the gods of uh, Buddhism, Buddhism technically is, is, not, uh, uh, is not theistic, but um, nevertheless, people who are Buddhists still worship something. He says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe. And his, his conclusion is this. This is how all the world should respond to him. Everybody should stand in awe of him. And, and technically, the, the, the word means let all the world, world stand speechless. Let all the world be immobilized in, with, with their awe of what they see in the character of God. That's his point. You ever been immobilized by something that you saw that was awe-inspiring? Anyway, you've been to the Grand Canyon. You look at that canyon. It's just, it's like, wow. And you're just, you're just rooted to the, you don't want to move anywhere. You just want to look and take it all in. You are immobilized with awe. And he's suggesting to us that when we begin to meditate on the greatness of who God is, both his power and his goodness, that we should be, the appropriate response is to be immobilized with awe. There's a passage in the Old Testament where, where Moses is described as seeing, uh, seeing God and the people see God. And the first thing Moses does is he bows down. In seeing God, he bows down in worship the automatic, immediate response that he's in awe and he must hide his face in prostrate and worship. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood still. His summary uh, rationale is God is awesomely powerful. I'll give you two simple illustrations of this. When I was at the University of Maryland, we had a, a, a track uh, guy on the team, on the track team, Nick Bassiano. He was a 9-2, sprinter, very fast. Um, I was also at the University of Maryland, all you Dallas fans will love this, when Randy White was there. And Randy White took up the whole lane <laughs> on the track. And I saw Randy White uh, in a race with Nick Bassiano in a 40-yard dash. And over 40 yards, Randy White was a, a step, maybe a half a step behind Nick Bassiano. I'll tell you, when you see something moving that fast that is that big, <laughs> it's an awesome sight. <laughs> it, is, it is just, it's just so powerful. Um, yeah, I think of, of what, uh, you know, I'm an Eagles fan. And Buddy Ryan was not, uh, he was the coach of the Eagles, and he was not... Um, he, he drafted Randy White, uh, not, uh, not Randy White, uh, Reggie White, uh, one year when the Eagles desperately needed a running back. And uh, everybody was upset with him in Philadelphia. 
And uh, Buddy said, look, when you have uh, the chance to draft a once-in-a-lifetime player like Reggie White, you draft him. It doesn't matter what position he plays, you draft him. And that was Reggie White. He was an awesome defensive lineman. The writer is trying to tell us, you've got to get a picture of how great, how big, how powerful, how good your God is. You've got to wrap your head around that. Because everything in this culture teaches you to be in awe of other things other than God or distract you from spending any time meditating on the greatness of your God. And when you meditate, but when you meditate on the greatness of your God, great things will begin to happen in the spirit that is in you. And you'll become jubilant in your praise. And you will want everybody else to become jubilant with their praise of the God you love. How should you and the whole world respond to the power of the goodness of God? Verse 8, with fear and reverence. And if that's not happening, it's not because God is not great. It's because we're not spending the time to think deeply enough about how good and powerful he is. So change our habits, change our behaviors. And I can't think of a better time of the year to do that than at the beginning of the year when we're going to try to learn to sing a new song. Second, because God always wins and is always wise. Verse 10. His will is triumphant. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. We, we take a minute and look at those verses. I mean, really look at these verses. He brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the purposes of his people. Now that is mind-boggling. And sometimes it doesn't look like it's true. Let's be honest, right? I just wrote uh, something on my blog last, late last night and, and, and put it up. That sometimes it doesn't look like that's true. It doesn't like, like this week, for instance. When, when, when the, you know, the, the, uh, in Iran, they put the red flag over the mosque, right? Because they're going to go on jihad. And our own president is uh, assassinating somebody on, uh, from Iran on yet another country's soil, okay? And we're looking in that, and the whole world is up in arms, and some are for and some are against. I'm not getting into the politics of that. I, I'm just saying, Lord, Really? Couldn't you have frustrated the plans on either side? Yes, the answer is yes. But sometimes it doesn't look like that, does it? But he can. And even in this, he is. He's, he's working behind the scenes. He's working through this. He's working through these things to accomplish his will. We don't see how it is, but it is true that he frustrates the plans of the peoples. And he nullifies. That's how 
the uh, New American Standards puts it, he, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He nullifies the plans of the nations. The word here means to bring to an end, to break, to crush, to destroy. And, and the form that it's in, uh, the, the form of the, the, the verb, uh, coupled with the tense, means that, uh, it, it, he, that God actively causes this. He actively hinders the plans of men and nations that don't move his plan forward. He actively works to do that. Now, there's all kinds of mystery surrounding that declaration that we can't completely answer. But let's ask some important questions that we can answer. Like, what does that say about making plans about anything without His approval? You and I. If He nullifies the counsel of the nations, if He frustrates the plans of the people, what does that say about us making any kinds of plans about anything without consulting Him for His approval, without looking at His, wor at His Word. When you get married, when to get married, if to get married, who to marry, how to begin, uh, when to begin sexual relations, how to run your marriage, how to run your finances, how to raise your kids, uh, what school to go to or send your children to, uh, what car to buy, what job to take. If these verses are true and they are, then it's a dangerous thing to plan and act on anything without the approval of God. It's a dangerous thing to see what the Word of God says and to say, I see what it says, but I'm going to do something else. That's a dangerous thing because He frustrates the plans of the people. Because not you, not me, not our government, not the government of Iran. God always wins. And he's always wise. Always. See, by the way, this is one of the reasons Christians should want leaders who take prayer and the counsel of God seriously. You want your leaders seeking wisdom from God in the Word of God. It's a dangerous thing to live a life as if God were not there examining your plans and your motives and your action. He will foil your plans. He will thwart your purposes. Which is where I think the next verse goes. So he, he will frustrate or nullify every plan that doesn't conform to his plan and, and purpose for you. So why not get on the winning side now? Why, why, why form plans that, that uh, are sandcastles that God's going to wash away? In contrast to the counsels of the ideas of men, look at what verse 11 says about the counsels of God. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. God has principles that he wants all of us to apply all the time. I still remember a message I heard back in 1975. Uh, uh, little bald guy, Jay uh, Hart, um, um, Pastor Marlon Hardman, and uh, he, he spoke on one text. It was Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled 
some translations, stands firm, like here, in heaven. He had five points. Forever, the time that counts. O Lord, the person that counts. Thy word, the commodity that counts. Is settled, the decision that counts. In heaven, the place that counts. Never forget that message. That's what this text is saying. God's word is settled. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. From one generation to the next, his plans are settled because his plans stand forever. His perspective is still and always true and is always the right perspective on everything in our lives. He's always right because he always wills and chooses consistent with his nature. And we've already learned in verse 4 that he loves truth. In verse 5, that he loves righteousness and justice. He's a trustworthy God. And therefore, he concludes this section with verse 12 and applies what he's learned. Verse 12 says this, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Blessed are those people because this is the God who speaks to them, who guides them, who leads them, who protects them. This is the God. That's the one that we should be exuberantly shouting our praises about and to. And so his point is rejoice if you are on the side of the Lord because he is powerful and his will always wins and is always wise because it flows from his always righteous, always good, always loving, steadfast saturated love for his people. So when you buy a car, you make a major purchase, what do you do? Well, you do some research and you consult sources that you can trust and you try to find out um, all the information that you can so you can make a wise choice. And so what uh, what I'm suggesting to you is make God your consultant on every issue of life and you will always make wise choices. And when you do that, you, it, it, you're going to sing new songs in the new year. You're going to have hope because God would lead you forward. Doesn't mean you'll be without heartache. Doesn't mean without pain. Doesn't mean you won't have troubles. Doesn't mean you won't have uh, concerns in your life, but you will consistently have a well coming up in your spirit that I can trust my God as he's leading me. Third, third thing he says, verses 13 through 19, because his knowledge is awesome. And all through those those verses, he talks about the knowledge of God. The Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all. I want you to look at all the superlatives that are mentioned and I'll emphasize them with my voice. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And, it, and by its great might, it cannot, res- it cannot rescue Behold, the eyes of the Lord is on those who fear him. I think of 2 Chronicles 16, uh, 9. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support him whose heart is wholly devoted to him. 
That's, the, that's echoed here. On those who's, who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Look at all those repetitions and the use of those superlatives. All, 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 great, great, great. He's trying to drive home a point. God knows everything he needs to know to guide us. You know, sometimes, how many times have you, have you talked to somebody, you've asked for somebody for counsel, they give you their counsel, but you're thinking in the back of your mind, but they don't know this. So they're, and, and what you're doing is you're, you're, you're dismissing, at least at some level, some of their counsel because they don't know the fuller story, right? That's never the case with God. He, he looks out and he sees everything. He, he knows the full story. He knows everything he needs to know to guide you, to guide me. See, God, God is, in this psalm is drawing our attention to his awareness of all the deeds of men. He, he sees everything he needs to see. So verses 16 and 17 give a picture to help us draw the right conclusion. What is the picture? Look at the verses 15, uh, 16 and 17. The king isn't saved by his great army, and the warrior is not delivered by his great strength. See, that's, that's the, uh, the, the, the fantasy. Uh, that is the prejudice. That is the, uh, the delusion of military might. Is that we begin to trust in the number of guns we have rather than the God. who does all things after the counsel of his own will, for his own purposes. His knowledge is complete and discerning and comprehensive, so that the discerning gaze of God is upon us at all times. He has perfect knowledge, verses 13 through 15. He has perfect control, verses 16 and 17. And he has perfect love, verses 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hold Hope in his steadfast love. Perfect knowledge, perfect control, perfect love. And it tells us how, verses 18 and 19, tell us how that should affect us. It should lead us to have hope in his steadfast love. He's trying to pound this into our souls. It's as if God is saying you know, to, to me, Marty, get this through your head. If God says that you should do something, not do something, believe something, not believe something, uh, not, uh, then you better do it because he, not you, is always right. That's what all of us have to wrestle with. So we find out what living and thinking like this produces when we get to the last three verses. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. That's called rest. Our soul waits for the Lord. That's called rest. Verse 21, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. That's called joy. And verse 22. By the way, the only, the only portion of this psalm that is actually a prayer, the rest of it is talking to the, to the assembled saints. Act this way because of who your God is. And now, finally, a one-verse prayer. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us 
even as we hope in you. Those three verses, rest, joy, hope. You want that in the new year? Man, I do. I want all those things in the, in the new year. So let me end with, end with some quick applications. We're going to have the worship team uh, come up here and just very quickly some applications. One, how can we become a people who represent our God well in the new year and who have uh, a saturated hope in God? One, by becoming a people of praise. But by becoming a people who, instead of uh, looking for things to complain about, we're looking for reasons to praise God. And we're looking principally in the Word of God and what God has told us in His Word. So becoming a people of praise is going to bring joy to Him and it's going to set us up for greater hope all, all year, right? Because praise is connected to our hope. Hope is connected to our praise. Second, um, by becoming a people who serve well. I go back to the verse where it says, uh, play skillfully on a ten-string lyre. And, and the, the admonition is, you know, hey, you musicians and, and you singers, sing some new songs, write some new songs, and do it skillfully. Use everything that you have in your life. Now, not all of us are musicians and singers, right? Some of us, the people around us, don't want us to sing. You know, that, that's okay. Uh, but, but, but what is the application for us? Because it's not just about singers. It's about all of us singing a new song. So what are the skills that you bring to the table? What are the, what are the, the, uh, the, the talents that you bring? What are the ways that you can use your gifts, that, such as they are, whatever they are, to, to use skillfully in this next year in serving the body of Christ here? Come out of your shell. Look for those opportunities. There's no ministry in the church that has enough people in that ministry. None. Zero. You might say, oh, well, the, the women's ministry is really being handled well, or the men's ministry, or, or the worship ministry, or the ushers, the greeters, or a- anything, you, the children's ministry, or youth ministry. You might say, well, man, there's a great team of people, and you're right, there are. There's a great team of people in all of those ministries that are doing great work in our church, but there's none of them that wouldn't like to have you with your gifts and your talents and your experience come alongside and be a part of that team, offering those gifts as an offering of worship and praise to God. That's another way that we can be, become the church that God wants us to be, by becoming a people who serve well. Third, by becoming a people who loves righteousness and justice. When a church becomes a church that says, I want to be like my God. I want to be a, a person who is saturated with love, who loves justice and righteousness, and who works for that in the world around me. We begin to bring praise and honor to God. And then finally this, as the worship team comes, by becoming a people of great hope. As we become a people of great hope, that no matter what's going on around us, our hope is not tied to the circumstances that we see or perceive uh, around us, but our hope is tied to an unflinching, unwavering, focused, saturated vision of how great our God is. And to get there, you've got to be a Bible reader. That's why you have a new Bible reading plan. And you have to read in such a way that you have time to meditate on the Word of God, to think it through to the level. Of, here's, here's part of the problem in, in the American church. We do too much devotional reading of the Bible. Too much. That is, we put in our time, we pass the words before our eyes, uh, we hope that we get something inspirational 
for the day and we move on. I'm not saying there's no value to that, but the real value is on chewing your food, meditating on it, thinking hard about it. So that one of you comes up to me one Sunday and says, hey, pastor, you don't have to preach today. I've got to say this to the congregation. I'll probably say no. <laughs> but I'll be really thrilled that you're excited like that because of your meditation in the Word of God. Amen? Father, we love you. We know we don't love you en enough. We long to love you more. It's why we come here. We're starting this year in your word. We're starting this word with one another because we want to together learn more about who you are, the greatness of your power and goodness and love, what your dreams are for us because, Lord, your will is always right and ours is so often wrong. So, Lord, be glorified as we stand to sing and worship you. And thank you for the opportunity to be together this first Sunday of the year.